The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. weeks coming to Christmas next weekend. I'm simply looking at Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. We looked at chapter 1, the first part of chapter 1 last week, and the genealogy there, which I hoped you came to see, is not a lot of meaningless words and names, but indeed representing something important. Now, very directly, we come to the birth of Jesus in Matthew's version. Matthew is more the witness who told it from Joseph's standpoint, whereas Luke told things more from Mary's point of view. And I read the simplicity and power of what is said in Matthew chapter 1, 18 through the end of that chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. I'm sure you've had times in your life when you have perhaps been overcome with feelings of personal insignificance. You feel sometimes as if your little puny life measured against all the millions of other lives that are living now or ever have lived is of no great consequence. And in your lowest times, you can even perhaps despair that your life really matters at all. Other people seem to be wealthier, more attractive, more successful, more popular And they seem significant, but you ask yourself, do I make any kind of real difference, the fact that I'm alive? It seems to be God's very frequent habit in the Bible, if you stop and think about it, to come to people who are small and unknown, little people who are not important and are not at all famous when the Lord God approaches them. That would include Abraham, Moses, David, Ruth, Mary, many others. 
In fact, I have a hard time thinking of someone who was highly consequential or famous or, or greatly renowned in this world whom the Lord approached and greatly used for his kingdom. God is always using the little people, the people who don't feel or actually are not very significant, but they become significance because of their obedience to him and their faith in him. I remember a time very acutely. My wife and I watched our DVD of It's a Wonderful Life the other night. That's a habit in our home. I understand the movie's corny. I understand that it's sentimental. I had never discovered that movie before 1982. And if you cast your mind back, if you're old enough, it was not shown a lot. It was not that well known before the 1980s. It was kind of had a revival to the point of now where it's seen a lot. I remember one night at home, 1982 was a year when I was in the second year of starting a new church, having left a liberal denomination, feeling that God wanted me to do that, much as Mr. Siddons told of doing that in our bulletin today as becoming this church's first pastor. And I had left a substantial congregation and the security that it offered to start a church with 12 people. And it was in the second year of that, approaching Christmas. And we maybe had about 40 people on a Sunday morning at that point in time, no building a call our own or anything, a drafty gym we met in. And I was having a little bit of a pity party, I think, for myself. And sat up one night, and I must have fallen asleep when this movie came on. I did not know the movie prior to that, was not familiar with it, but I woke up early in the showing of It's a Wonderful Life. And I was fascinated. I was drawn in by the story that it tells that most all of you know in some way or other of a man who felt that he was chained to his small town and to a business there that was obscure when he wanted to go out and do great things and accomplish great things that he was a little man left to do little things, and yet the little things were great in the eyes of many others. And that movie really was, it was almost like a dream because I, I, I was unfamiliar with it. I had awakened on the couch and watched this. I guess it went until one in the morning or something, and uh, I was fascinated. And I felt like it was the Lord saying, your life counts. What you're doing counts to more people than you know. Well, here we are looking at a man who never speaks when he's told about in the Bible. It always impressed me that Joseph is completely silent, and what we have are his actions, which were actions of faith and obedience. I ask you to look, first of all, today at verse 18 of Matthew 1 to see this situation, this circumstance of an almost broken marriage Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you've heard before that in the first century, a Jewish betrothal called Kiddushan was a formal, very formal engagement, much more formal than anything we have for engagement today. It really was viewed as a marriage but not consummated yet. The Kiddushan, or engagement, betrothal, lasted for a year. And the couple lived apart, lived with their family home. They could certainly see each other and spend time together and so on, but they did not 
act as husband and wife yet, although in the law they were actually called husband and wife. But to have sexual relations in that time or to become pregnant in that time was really, really forbidden and would bring a good deal of of shame and difficulty if it ever happened. Kiddushan, we know, happened for, in girls in particular, very young, sometimes 13 or 14, usually in men a little bit older. We don't know the ages of either Joseph or Mary. It's always been speculated that Mary was certainly a teenager and Joseph possibly no more than 20 at most. But during their betrothal, the text is very clear. They did not come together. They did not live together. This is hard for us to seem to understand, or at least many in our society, where sex before marriage is the commonly practiced thing without a blush. The new normal is exhibited when you read the, if you ever look at the column in our local paper that shows the applicants for marriage licenses, and it will give the name John Smith and Susan Jones, and it will give each of their addresses, but many times it gives John Smith's address, and then it says Susan Jones, same address. And you see that many, many times today, that living together before marriage is just the commonly done thing, and people just wonder what kind of dinosaurs we are if we think there's something wrong with that. We've had couples express astonishment coming to us, even from evangelical parents, when we as pastors here at our church tell them we won't perform their ceremony if they're living together. And they look at us just amazed that we would set up such a standard as that at times. Well, not too many years ago, in the memory certainly of many of us adults, we can remember when our society talked about illegitimate children. Oh, what a nasty phrase that is. When's the last time you heard it? Even though 30% of all children born today are born without an acknowledged father in the home, they would be called that. But we've decided we don't call anybody that anymore because that's casting blame, that's acting negative. We don't want to be that way. Even though children without fathers are an enormous, enormous source of our urban social problems today. Mary's pregnancy was a personal disaster a social disaster, and a religious disaster viewed from those standpoints. Joseph knew that the child was not his. Mary knew it was not Joseph's child. You wonder what the parents involved thought. Mary brought an explanation. She said it was by the Holy Spirit. Well, how many people believed that? How many people believed a teenage girl who said, yes, I'm going to have a child, but I've never known a man? Utterly fantastic. Joseph possibly assumed that some Roman soldier waylaid her in an alley or something, and she was making the best kind of story she could make up about it. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British social commentator, kind of a Walter Cronkite sort of figure in his society back in the 1960s. And Muggeridge had been an agnostic, very outspokenly agnostic for most of his career, but he came to Christ late in life. I think he was in his 70s, and for 10 or 15 years before he died, he wrote prolific things about Christianity. In a book he wrote about Jesus rediscovered, Malcolm Muggeridge, the former critic, said, Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with a father unknown would have us to would have us call it an obvious case for abortion. 
and all her talk of having been conceived by the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed her towards psychiatric treatment. In light of all this, it's so interesting to me that Joseph never speaks. Joseph's a pivotal actor in the nativity drama, but he never speaks, at least not on the record. His actions do all the talking. Here, here was a man who was certainly embarrassed, probably somewhat outraged, but apparently in a quiet fashion. He's called a righteous man. He knew the law, and he cared about the law of Israel. He knew what was allowed to him. He knew that he could put her aside, and no one would blame him at all. But even in doing that, he was a bit reluctant because he didn't want to embarrass her or hurt her or heap shame upon her. And so secondly, we look in this text at biblical allowances made for divorce. Now, one has existed for a long time, from the Old Testament age onward, and another was added in the New Testament. The older one is the idea of any sexual interference between a husband and a wife if it is persistent and if one chooses to see that what we would call adultery come between a husband and wife is allowable for divorce to happen. The Bible word, the Greek word, is porneia. You can certainly figure out how we get the word pornography. Sexual interference, sexuality expressed outside of marriage. When that occurs with either the husband or the wife against the other partner, that other partner is allowed to say, this has disrupted our covenant and could, on that basis, biblically divorce. Then, of course, we, we have later, and it wasn't yet spoken at this time, but in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives the other classic ground that when a believer is abandoned by a non-believer and persistently abandoned, Paul doesn't just say, it's okay to let him go. He commands, let him go. Let him go. You are no longer bound. So certainly the Bible, which is totally a pro-marriage book, does allow these limited occasions for divorce. And Joseph knew that his situation qualified for that first classic action because someone must have had sex with his intended because she was now pregnant. And he knew the law would allow him to escape this dilemma, to just go quietly to the rabbis and say, I divorce her and he would walk away clean. No one would blame him. In fact, people would wonder what was wrong with him if he didn't do that, if indeed he was not the father. If he stayed, if he remained in the covenant, you could think people would draw the mental conclusion, aha, it really was Joseph. If it wasn't him, why, he would have divorced her. So he would be drawn into the shame and the back fence gossip that was pointed to Mary by staying with her. Well, we find God used a dream, a powerful voice of an angel messenger speaking to Joseph. You can, you can imagine him, you know, tossing sleeplessly over this situation. What should I do? How should I act? When should I act? And finally, feeling strongly that God spoke in this dream. We could go off on a tangent and speak about God's use of dreams as a means of revelation in the Bible. Certainly, the Old Testament has many instances of it, and the New Testament as well. Today, we have something better than dreams that they didn't have, and it's right here. 
between leather covers. God has completed His revelation today, and while we wouldn't say He could never speak in a dream, I'm not ready to limit what God cannot do. But it is not His normal way of revealing Himself today when He's given us His Word. But here was Joseph, completely justified if he said, all right, where are the papers? What do I have to fill out? What will satisfy the writ of divorce? Called by God to join in what was Mary's sense of shame, that certainly it would, be, it would remain that in the eyes of other people. We know, I mentioned last week, that, that there was a little bit of gossip that followed Jesus all the way through to adulthood. Isn't this the carpenter's son, so-called, they said later on? There, there was the hint in the New Testament that something shadowy kind of followed Jesus, that his birth was not an ordinary one. Here was a small, very ordinary man, not a scholar, not a wise man, not a prophet, not a king, a carpenter, a man who made furniture and framed houses and had blisters and calluses on his hands. A man who stood tall because he believed God called him to share in a woman's time of shame, a time of misunderstanding, and to serve her and to protect the child that she would give birth to. You see here in the third place what is happening in this long ago historic action was a balance between rights and righteousness. We're all about rights today. What are my rights? This relationship isn't going so well. She's not what I thought she was. He's certainly not the man I thought I married. Oh, look at him, staying up at night. I know he's got a stash of porn on his computer. He doesn't care for me. He doesn't cherish me. Or I know that she's got a relationship with an old high school friend on the, on the computer and that that seems to be going over the line. I'm ready to get out of here. My rights are my rights, and I don't need to stay with this. We've got all our own versions of this today. And Joseph was within his biblical rights to seek a divorce. He was innocent in this. And like him, you may be in a situation maritally where you're, you're being sinned against very legitimately so and really so. And you know it, and you've, you've put up with it, and you've persevered for a while, and you've argued, and you've talked, and you've forgiven, but you're saying, I've got my rights too. After all, what is marriage? Just a piece of paper, right? And when it becomes this difficult and this inconvenient to stay with it, when the feeling of romance has faded, famous feeling, feeling has more problems when it comes to marriage than anything I can think of because feelings are inconstant and they never last. They constantly change. So let the law work in your favor, we say. It's time to call the attorney. Well, if you think marriage is just a piece of paper, I guess you probably will be quick to do that. But God says it's more than a piece of paper. He says it's a covenant vow made before me to lay down your life for another person and sacrifice for that person and give your all to try to understand and forgive that person and pray for that person and care for that person. 
Let each one be submissive to the other, says Paul when he writes in Ephesians 5. Yes, indeed, in that chapter he says, let the wife submit to her husband. Read the paper we've put out for you folks. Submission certainly doesn't mean the man dominating foot on the wife's neck that some people think it does. It doesn't mean anything even close to that. It means the husband in strength, cherishing and caring for and protecting his wife and listening to her and building her up. Thank you for a well-placed amen. I appreciate that. (laughs) If marriage is just a piece of paper, you would go to the lawyer as your first result. But this is not what it is. Now, I don't say that someone should stay in a marriage. Don't misunderstand me. Wives, don't misunderstand that I'm saying stay in a marriage where you're being beaten or harmed or your life is being threatened and endangered. We as pastors of this church have helped a wife move out of a home, not in recent years, but we've done it, secretly so her husband would not know so she could escape a dangerous situation. We understand that. But if you have not reached that point, and if forgiveness and conversation and laying down your own rights for the other person is still possible, then that is your calling, folks. That is your calling. And only after you have pursued that, pursued the motivation of your marriage vow as far as it can be done, are you ready to pull the ripcord and take the parachute of divorce. It may be before you in a way that's biblically justified. But don't go there quickly. Don't go there on the spur of a moment. Joseph would have been righteous in divorcing Mary, and he would have fulfilled the letter of the law. But instead, he exercised a mercy and a grace that actually drew him into her public shame. I'm sure now the jests were pointed towards him, too, by those who gossiped about Mary. And in fact, you could say that Joseph acted in what he did much like Jesus, his adopted son, when he went to the cross for people who didn't deserve it. Joseph said, I don't deserve this. I, I didn't bargain on this. This isn't what I thought I was getting into. But when God called and said, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, protect her and her child, do this in obedience to me, Joseph did it without speaking, Without arguing, he rose from the dream and obeyed the Lord. Folks, if I would see one great lesson from this passage, there are so many things we could draw from it, but one today, vows in marriage are not to be taken lightly. They're to be pursued with all diligence and even at great cost that we would do everything that we said we would do and do it again and again and again what we said at the front of the church when we stood there and made vows to one another. Joseph, you see, did not have God's wide-angle lens view. He didn't know how famous he was going to become. You can't convince me that Joseph had any idea that there'd be statues of him in churches where people would light candles and pray to him, or that churches would be named St. Joseph's Church, or that we would be talking about him. 20 centuries after he lived, he had no comprehension of the big scale 
of what he was involved in. All he knew was God said, fulfill your vow, Joseph. Don't be afraid to take her. This is a thing ordered of God. And he did it. And look at how the history of the world changed. Because of one man, we could go into, and we didn't read it yet, but later in this chapter, he had a couple more dreams that go to Egypt. You need to be there for the child's protection. And then come back from Egypt. Herod is dead. And each time he obeyed. And the simplicity of his obedience protected the infant Jesus, who was defenseless, humanly speaking, on his own. He needed the protection of a wise and godly man who was nevertheless just an obscure craftsman. There is a time when divorce is allowed, according to biblical exception. It happens. It's happened among us. It happens always with pain, and we should have great compassion for those for whom it has happened. There may be such a decision in your future. I would hope not, but there may be. But I wonder if you will first consider lowly Joseph giving his marriage the ultimate effort, not hesitating to take Mary, to become her protector, to obey the Lord, and take this whole situation on that had really, you would say, nothing in it for him other than, of course, obtaining a wonderful wife. But Joseph, actually, socially speaking, was a loser here. He, he was having his—maybe it would even affect his business. Who knew? that he would be associated with such a thing. God won't appear in dreams to necessarily direct you. But we have his word. We know that he holds us in a chapter like Ephesians 5 to a high standard to consider self-sacrificially submitting one to the other, the husband to the wife, the wife to the husband, listening, caring, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, we do that for people out in the society, how much more must we do it for the one to whom we've pledged a vow to be a constant companion? This quality of self-sacrificing grace and mercy is the same thing that Jesus showed at the cross. And wasn't that what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5? I'm speaking about Christ. Husbands, I'm calling you to do what Christ did. Wow. It just always amazes me. Those who think that the idea of a wife's submission is making a husband a little tyrant are fools. They certainly haven't read Ephesians 5. Paul says, I'm calling you husbands to be like Christ to your wife. Well, husbands and wives, you may remain unknown in the annals of world history. You're never going to appear in hymns, probably. You'll never be famous in the way Joseph is, but you can be a hero or a heroine of grace in your marriage. And the time to pursue Joseph's kind of righteousness ahead of personal rights is today. It's in your marriage, the one to whom God has called you to walk beside in this world while you have her, while she has you. May God help you to see Joseph-like sacrificial grace in your life and relationship. Father, it's amazing how wounded marriage is today. 
how bizarre people's ideas of marriage are. TV shows that show the foolish competitions for women to win the hand of the most eligible bachelor or just all of the bizarre ways in which people distort marriage. I ask for your people who are struggling in this realm. I ask for those who have healthy marriages, too. Teach us and call us and instruct us to self-sacrifice, to cherishing, to listening, to being willing to take on the other's weakness where our strength might be helpful. And to do this in the name of Jesus and along the lines of the model of Joseph for so long ago. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.